This is class two in our class of on the three doors of liberation. And uh, just to review what these three doors are. And also what I like to do in my classes um, is go back very quickly and review what we talked about in the last class. So we'll do that. Last class, we talked about liberation. And this class, we're going to focus on uh, the first of the three doors, emptiness, which is, you know, a big subject for us. Uh, so the three doors of liberation are uh, emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness or aimlessness. And originally they first appear, uh, they first appear in places in the in the Pali Suttas in early Buddhism, <clears throat> and in those cases, uh, and also in the writing of Nagarjuna, who was a, a kind of uh, pivotal figure in the uh, transition from uh, early Buddhism to Mahayana, uh, these are presented as concentrations or meditations. So uh, the concentration on emptiness is one in, is the samadhi or the concentration in which one uh, examines and recognizes that dharmas are empty and that the five aggregates, which we'll talk about um, a little later, are which we see as constituting the self are empty and that there is no self nature. The concentration on signlessness is the meditation that recognizes that all dharmas, all things, all beings are free from signs. And what Thich Nhat Hanh says signs refer to appearances or form. Uh, and so you could consider that the, the meditation on signlessness is not being fooled by appearances, not thinking that the appearances actually uh, expressive of the thing. And particularly, not being fooled by the dichotomy of being and non-being. And again, we will we'll talk about that because that's also uh, figures in the in the way that we look at emptiness. And the third concentration or meditation on wishlessness or aimlessness uh, literally means, placing nothing in front. Uh, so that means uh, it's synonymous with uh, not having plans for the future or not having desires. Uh, it's also, I think it's, it's what we translate, uh, what we have in, in uh, Suzuki Roshi and, and Sojin Roshi's 
uh, teachings as no gaining idea. Uh, so uh, Nagarjuna says it's the concentration in which one does not search for any kind of existence and let's go let let's go of aims or wishes. And that includes uh, that results in not producing the three poisons of greed, hatred, and delusion. So this is a review, just a very quick review of what these three doors are. Uh, and we can see them as principles or we can see them as uh, practices. So last week we spoke about liberation. And I think that we just really sort of scratched the surface of what uh, what traditionally is understood as liberation and also what we think of it, what we think of as liberation. Uh, so the word in, uh, in Pali uh, is vimoksha mukha. Uh, and as I said, vimoksha means loosening, uh, opening, setting free, uh, releasing. These are, this is the, the liberative aspect of it. And uh, mukha is what gets translated as door. So this is the, the door of liberation. And mukha literally means uh, mouth or face or opening uh, or, or outlet or source. And again, this is going to come up as we look at some of the various meanings of uh, emptiness. So one thing I said was that these three doors can be seen as having, uh, presenting an overlapping of path and goal, which is true for all of the, all of the practices, all of the sets of practices that we have. We think of the, if we think of the, uh, the paramitas, or the factors of enlightenment. So the paramitas uh, also translated as perfections. Uh, these are bodhisattva practices. And for a realized bodhisattva, they are the practices that are expressed by bodhisattva. The, so the bodhisattva embodies generosity, morality, patience, and so forth, and for up to wisdom. Um, for bodhisattvas to be, which basically means us, uh, these are the practices that we cultivate. So for the bodhisattva, the realized bodhisattva, they are manifestations of 
their of their state and for beings like ourselves they are the path by which we attain this kind of uh full realization of our buddha slash bodhisattva nature so um i think of these doors of liberation as a kind of a swinging door uh, they're the doors by which uh, we enter into the territory of liberation and they're also the doors through which liberation is expressed i think in our general sense we can talk about liberation as being free from greed, hatred, and delusion from those poisons. It's living in that way. It has specific implications according to the different traditions that, um, that have arisen in the history of Buddhism. So in the, in the Pali suttas, uh, The Buddha says, he asks, and then he answers. He asks the monks, what is Nibbana? Nibbana is another word for liberation, uh, meaning liberation, but also means extinction. So extinction uh, is a goal. So he answers, here, a monk is an arhant. In other words, one who has uh, basically uh, put an end to the taints, which are the three poisons. One who has lived the holy life has done what, what has to be done, which means has sought enlightenment and realized it, has laid down the burden, laid down the burden of uh, these endless cycles of rebirth, and utterly destroyed the fetters of existence. One is completely liberated through final knowledge. So final knowledge of, uh, of his own Buddha nature. So, and then he says, it is the destruction of lust, hatred, and delusion. So that's, that's a succinct expression of what liberation looks like, realized liberation looks like in the uh, in the early Buddhist tradition. In the Mahayana tradition, uh, the way that's framed is that one has come to that place, the same kinds of awarenesses that are described in uh, in that section from the Pali Suttas, but makes a choice to return to this world of samsara in order to help sentient beings while still being, existing in a kind of nirvana. So the Mahayana path is seen as a a kind of active or dynamic Buddhahood 
and not a static Buddhahood, not a not a Buddhahood that is uh, has ended one's cycle of existence. So, um, but the motivation for this, for a bodhisattva, is compassion. It's compassion to engage in enlightened activity. Uh, and to recognize also, and this is a radical step, that one can awaken, one can actually live in nirvana while being here in this samsaric world. So we go to the Zen tradition. Um, we have Dogen's radical, even more radical perspective on liberation, which is that we already are liberated. Our nature, our nature is Buddha nature. And that Buddha nature is all pervading. Uh, and so we don't practice as, as you would find in, in early Buddhism and also in Mahayana, usually the goal of practice is to accomplish enlightenment. For Dogen, as many of us know, we have the principle of practice realization or practice enlightenment, which means simply that we don't practice to accomplish enlightenment. Our practice is an expression it is the active articulation of our enlightened nature. Uh, and that in order to bring enlightenment into the world, uh, the bodhisattva, each of us, has to do or say something. It's that we are in relationship with all beings and that uh, enlightenment is an activity. It's not a state. And uh, I think this is this is very helpful. And I think this is this is the this is the the way that we've come to see it, certainly in our Zen tradition. Suzuki Roshi said, uh, "Wherever you are." enlightenment is there if you stand up right where you are that is enlightenment and then uh sojin said enlightenment is our nature our true nature that is always with us when we say get enlightened it's not that we actually get something it means to bring forth light, to let go so that the light can shine forth. So it's like removing the coverings, removing the veils so that the light that's within us can manifest. And Sojin says, enlightenment is the beginning of our practice. Enlightenment is what motivates us towards practice. The fact that you want to practice means that enlightenment 
means that the enlightenment that is always with you needs somehow to be expressed. So again, that's emphasizing the active component of enlightenment. And so these three doors of, of liberation or enlightenment are teaching of how to get to the root and how to root out uh, suffering for ourselves and others. Uh, how to live in accord with these truths. So I want to stop there from just uh, before I go on to talk about emptiness, just see if you have any, if there are any questions or thoughts that that arise from what I've just reviewed. You can please, you can raise your hands if you'd like. So we have uh, 34 enlightened beings uh, who have no question about the nature of enlightenment. That's that's like actually that's like you know you read you read the uh, the early sutras and the and the and the Buddha is asking questions of his disciples and they don't you know basically say oh yeah we got it we got it. So I'm going to assume, unless someone raises their hand within the next 30 seconds, that uh, everything that I've said has been clear so far. Daniel. How could it be that is they could un that it could have been understood in the closer to Pali tradition that there's not like a dynamic component like while you're living, is it, did they just understand it as death? No, there's two, okay. So there are two, two expressions of nirvana. There's nirvana with remainder, uh, which is the nirvana that you, uh, that you would realize or accomplish while you are living in this body. And uh, that is, uh, has many of the same characteristics uh, that I've, it's the same characteristics that I've described above, uh, but still you feel, you think you may have, you may have uh, experienced uh, pain, pleasure, uh, all of the, all the physical sensations. And then there's parinirvana. Parinirvana is um, what takes place at death. And at that point, you are liberated from the cycle of rebirth. So that's that's final nirvana or final extinction. Uh, and in Mahayana, there's some, uh, I don't want to go into this too much, just, there's a lot of ambiguity about uh, where the Buddha is. You know, uh, is the Buddha does he disappear? Uh, in some of the Mahayana, uh, in a lot of Mahayana suttas, he still has a kind of benign presence uh, looking over the world. But uh, 
this gets into uh, Buddhology that you know uh, we can get lost in. Uh, but uh, yes, there's a, there is a distinction. But uh, you know, as I said, I read last last week, uh, at least in in some interpretations of uh, of early Buddhism or Theravada. I read you this piece from um, Ayakema, said like the person who experiences nirvana never has an unpleasant thought again. So uh, I don't uh, I don't particularly buy that, but I think they're able to accept whatever they experience and not fall into greed, hatred, or delusion around it. Pleasant, unpleasant, they have some sense of equanimity, patience, all of the these factors of enlightenment, enlightenment that they apply to whatever perception they have. Okay. Yeah. So is the Mahayana one the same as the Theravada one with stuff left over? It's more evolved. It's just it's a different. It's a it's a more evolved uh buddhological concept and uh you know that's another that's something else that you can study or we can study but it's um since it's not within the realm of my experience i'm reluctant to say much about it uh -huh. okay okay i'm let's just take a moment and breathe and put your feet on the ground and then we'll move on. So, how we're going to speak about emptiness today. Uh, and what Sojin said at the beginning of his lecture on the three doors, he says the three subjects, these three doors of liberation, are really one subject. And the one subject is divided into three parts. So this one subject, this is a Buddhist understanding of what is called emptiness. I will start with emptiness, which is what the Prajnaparamita Sutra is all about. We say it's emptiness, and it's also about form. So we use this term emptiness, and the problem with the term emptiness is that it has so it means so many other things. Actually, in Buddha Dharma, there are 20 meanings for the term emptiness, but they're all related. In order to easily identify what we mean in the Dharma, it means interdependence. So that's the bottom line. Uh, all created dharmas or things are empty of their own inherent existence. In other words, we're all dependent. There's nothing in this world that is not dependent upon everything else. That's pretty easy. The problem is, how do we actually practice emptiness? So I was asking myself, how is this a door of liberation? And I think to use Suzuki Roshi's terms, uh, to contemplate emptiness is to see things as it is. 
uh, and we use this term as it is because it's a singularity. It's a wholeness. Uh, it's one inter Buddha, Buddha nature, which we might also call emptiness, is one interdependent suchness rather than the, a collection of things which we might say things as they are. And it's a practice because we try to bring this way of seeing into our everyday lives and into our encounters with people and things. So um, this is, of course, what we chant every uh, every day. We chant the, the Prajnaparamita Heart Sutra, which begins Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when practicing deeply the Prajnaparamita, perceived that all five skandhas in their own being are empty and was saved from suffering. So his practice of the perfection of wisdom, Prajnaparamita, is precisely his insight into emptiness. And then in this, in this very compressed way, the Heart Sutra then uh, then proceeds to describe various aspects or dimensions of uh, of emptiness, and uh, often describes it in a in a negative way rather than a positive way. So I'm interested. I'd like to. Uh, Let's take a few minutes, uh, and I'd like to ask you two questions. Uh, so maybe we can, you know, if you could set up breakout rooms of uh, four people, I guess it'd be a couple. Uh, anyway, roughly four people. If you have a group of five, that's fine. Uh, and I want to ask you two questions. First of all, what does emptiness mean to you? How would you define it for yourself? Or how do you, and also, how do you practice emptiness? That's the second question. What is it, what is its personal meaning to you? And what is your practice of it? So I think let's take about 12 minutes to, uh, to talk about that and then come back and we'll harvest some of your responses. Is that okay? Okay, so let's go into the groups and you can leave me out of the groups, okay? Okay, it looks like we're mostly back. I um, wonder if, if anyone would like to share uh, what their definition of emptiness is or uh, and or what their practice of emptiness might be. Please raise your hand and share. Very interested in hearing. Gary, Gary has his hand raised. Gary? Not, now I'm not. I'm not hearing him either. I'm not hearing him either. 
No, very faint. Ah, keep going a little louder. Louder? Is that, louder. Is that better? A little better. Okay, well, one definition we had was uh, uh, boundlessness. Uh-huh. Or, or emptiness. And, um, and, uh, inclusiveness or or being inclusive for actualizing emptiness mm -hmm. so not not rejecting any side of the moral moral um, compass yeah being completely open not acting on any not necessarily acting on anything but not not excluding anything that was what good I came up with yeah. good that's very good that bounce so boundlessness is the translation is the translation that uh kaz tanahashi and joan halifax came up with in their version of the heart sutra and um that that represents one aspect of it i think and really important aspect of it uh and so let's let's come back to to where we talk about that but i think that's it's a really i think that's a really useful way of looking at it so because we have this attachment i think in the context of the english language that emptiness means absence or that something is missing and um, that's, I don't think that's the implication of the way the Buddhist understanding of, uh, of shunya or shunyata is. And so we'll, we'll get to that. Someone else. Uh, Joel? Yeah, hi. Um... It was kind of interesting because all of us were expressing our perplexity about find you know really getting out of our heads with us we could say interdependence or whatever and it made some sense but it wasn't quite it and i found myself saying just i don't know i don't know um and then thinking that i don't know this is something cl close to emptiness i mean i just don't know and a kind of sense of of living and breathing in i don't know um so if you know and then practicing realizing all the times when i think i know and in fact i don't know i'm making up something i'm creating a song um and uh, and that the practice would be letting go of the sign. And right. So I think, yeah, I think that you just, so I feel that I, that not knowing yeah, falls into uh, the dimension of signlessness. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which cannot be separated. You can't separate mm -hmm. emptiness and signlessness, really. 
but yeah. they, they represent they represent different dimensions of a way of looking. Right. Right. Okay. Terrific. Thanks. Thank you. Anyone else? I can't see the raised hands. I can only see the digitally raised hands. Uh, Mira and Manuela both uh, raised their hands. Good. Mira? Hi. See you. Yeah. But not hearing you. Okay. Got that now. Okay. Two things. So um, to me, the emptiness um, really it makes sense for me interdependence because then I see emptiness being everything is one. So emptiness is the same as fullness. It's, it's completely full and um, everything's connected and one. And I really know the term boundlessness too. And for me, that was very helpful learning that term. And um, it just, really changed my perspective of, of emptiness in, in a very full way. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, I also think of it as fullness. Um, and uh, I also see there's, there's another dimension of it, but that's a, that is a, the interdependence mm -hmm. is the implication that there is nothing that exists that is, and this is what Chojin said, and this is classical definition. There's nothing, nothing exists that is not dependent upon other, other things, other causes and conditions. So, so everything that we, that we are seeing, everything that we are being is full of other causes and conditions. Uh, and that is itself, you know, it's, it's limitless, you know, it's boundless, the, the boundlessness of causes and conditions that make up each of us as so called individuals is, is unthinkable. You know, we just can't get our minds around that. So yeah, that's, that's, that's really helpful. Take one more, then I want to go on. Manuela? Um, I had said that in our group that it's the insight um, in meditation initially that one's thoughts are not reality, one's emotions are not reality, and the sense of that larger mind that can observe that, which encompasses everything and doesn't tend to limit oneself or grab onto anything. And in a way, I see why emptiness then is the ground um, and wishlessness and uh, um, what was the other one? Uh, signlessness is all a way of not taking, signlessness might be like the, that thought that's gripping you or that emotion that's gripping you. Don't take that sign as being the, 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 the truth of something. And so the, the larger space is emptiness to me and it encompasses all of these things and enables me to interact 
with myself and with others and and the totality of everything that's in the emptiness, which is full of all kinds of things. So I find it a very it's a very comforting thing to me. Right. And also, uh, but I'm gonna also I'm gonna talk about this a little, the the kind of bound togetherness of emptiness and impermanence. Uh, that if things were not impermanent, uh, then our universe would be filled up with things. So its impermanence allows uh, allows for uh, impermanence and emptiness together allow space for uh, change and new things to arise. Right. So. I want to go back a moment. I'm trying to think this week. I was thinking, what was my first understanding of emptiness? And uh, I remember when I when I came to Berkeley Zen Center, shortly after I came to Berkeley Zen Center in the early 80s, uh, you know, I heard about Tassajara and I really wanted to go there. And I, I went down during work period. And one afternoon during work period, there was a uh, a little a student workshop given by one of the students on uh, the Heart Sutra. And essentially he was focusing on emptiness. And I've, I just spoke to Liz yesterday. She remembers it was a, uh, it was a family from Mexico that, that came and visited, uh, Ron might remember them actually, uh, came and visited this is about 84, 85. Uh, the whole family came. I think they had a, a child and the uh, father and mother. And his name was Juan. I can't remember his last name. Anyway, uh, he gave this great presentation of the Heart Sutra, which I had found perplexing, even though we've been chanting it every day. And what he said was, essentially, emptiness does not mean vacancy. Emptiness is really, uh, as Mira was saying, a fullness, a fullness of causes and conditions. And the, the model that he used to unpack this was uh, looking at an automobile, uh, which is a very, you know, a common metaphor. You know, we, we, see, we see an automobile parked outside or we see it going down the road and we know what it is. We think we know what it is. But when we try to look at what is the automobile, if we look at the various, it, it, is, a, it is a collection of, of parts. It's, you know, it's a wheel, wheels, it has a motor, it has steering wheels, it has a seat, it has a body, it has, it has bumpers, it has all of these things, it has lights. All of these things are components of what we call an automobile. Uh, but you can't point to any, not no one of them uh, embodies this whole assembly of things. And what he was saying was that all of reality is like that. And this is what, where the Heart Sutra begins. It begins by saying that the five skandhas, which is the traditional uh, deconstruction of the self is 
that is, in a gross sense, the parts that that come together to make uh, what we call a person or self. So one way of looking at emptiness is that it is a distinction between the way things appear to be and the way they actually are. A distinction between appearance and reality. And that they are they are very close to uh, emptiness and impermanence are very close together. You can't really separate them. And I um, emptiness you could see as the intersection of impermanence and interconnectedness. That um, Thich Nhat Hanh has a really good way of talking about it. He says that impermanence looks at reality from the standpoint of time. And emptiness looks at reality from the standpoint of space. And that's a really interesting way to frame it. So impermanence is talking about uh, talking about things from the context in the context of time, how they unfold in time, and and uh, emptiness is about what we see as occupying space. Uh, so no self or emptiness is a manifestation of impermanence and impermanence is a manifestation of emptiness. Uh, so to go back to some of the a traditional perspective, where we begin in early Buddhism, uh, that when we talk about emptiness, it's mostly talking about uh, the self. Uh, it's talking about, and it breaks itself down into the skandhas and, or the aggregates. And it's also um, then looks at, looks at the aggregates of, of consciousness, which is the aggregate consciousness, which is the, the fourth, the fifth skanda. Consciousness is manifest as dharmas. And dharmas, in in these terms, uh, this is the subject of the the Abhidharma, one of the uh, one of the collections of the Buddha's teachings. Um, the dharmas are seen as sort of basic building blocks of personality or character or thought or consciousness, and at least in early Buddhism, they were seen as the, they were kind of the, the smallest level of, uh, of identification, the smallest level that you could point to uh, as, shall I say, existing. And this was, this was a way, this is what the, what the Abhidhamma did, uh, was to systematize 
this analysis and to basically create a very a structural analysis of what we create this illusory self of. Not to say that it's a real self, that it's still an illusion because it's a collection of these things. But it these are these are building blocks uh, along with form, which is the physical elements. Uh, these are the building blocks out of which out of which we connected the sense of self. Uh, and so uh, in the Sunya Sutta, Ananda, Buddha's attendant is said, it is said that the world is empty, Lord. In what respect is it said that the world is empty? The Buddha replied, insofar as it is empty of a self or of anything pertaining to a self. Thus, it is said that the world is empty. So a lot, the emphasis in early Buddhism was on the nature of the self. And in a way, this is part of the, the argument that, that Buddhism was having with other aspects of, of Indian philosophy, which which postulated an Atman, a self. And so it was really focused there. Um, but there's another way that you see it, also even in early Buddhism, that um, emptiness is also a mode of perception, that it's a way of looking at experience uh, that adds nothing to it and takes nothing away from it. It's just the raw data of physical and mental events. So the raw data of physical and mental events is also what we would call dharmas. And that's a traditional early Buddhist analysis. Uh, So when we get to uh, when we get to Mahayana, the perfection of wisdom teachings and the Majamaka teachings of uh, of Nagarjuna, then we begin to see a a different uh, a different perspective. And I want to read you something. This is a really excellent book. If you don't know it called the foundations it's backwards i'm sorry it's called the foundations of buddhism uh by rupert gethin g-e-t-h-i-n and i feel like this is this is about as fine and detailed an analysis of buddhism as as i've found but i wanted to read you something uh how he talks about uh emptiness. It says, since we fail to see things as they really are, I'm sorry, central to the Abhidharma is the distinction between the conventional truth that people and selves exist and the ultimate truth that people and selves are intimate, are ultimately aggregates 
of evanescent dharmas, physical and mental events. The teaching, the main teaching of the perfection of wisdom is that from the perspective of perfect wisdom, even this account of the way things are is ultimately arbitrary. Uh, since we fail to see things as they really are, impermanent, suffering, and not self, we grasp at them as if they were permanent, as if they could bring lasting happiness. Uh, the cultivation of insight involves breaking up the seemingly substantial and enduring appearance of things. So what he's saying, and this is the thrust of the Heart Sutra, the thrust of the Heart Sutra is taking on, uh, it's a critique of earlier Buddhism. Uh, so perfect wisdom, perfection of wisdom, Prajnaparamita, is what sees through the process of the mind's conceptual construction and is not tainted by attachment to any view or 